your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I will continue in just a moment the reading that was started earlier, completing that chapter for us, or of course you can follow along in your bulletins as well. Before I read it, just a reminder very quickly of where we are historically, because it's been now a couple of weeks since we have been uh, in 2 Samuel. And uh, in the last chapter, in chapter 5, we saw David being anointed over the kingdom of Israel united, both uh, Israel and Judah at that point. We saw him and his united forces then take Jerusalem, and the Lord established him in that city. Jerusalem, the city of God, Zion, the city of David, the place wherein God has promised that he would set his name, where he would dwell with his people. David grew stronger there, and at the end of that chapter, uh, we didn't read this section uh, when I preached on it a couple weeks ago, but at the end of that chapter, we see David leading the forces against the Philistines uh, and being victorious in battle. In chapter 6, where we are now, we now see that Jerusalem isn't going to be just a strategic geopolitical capital But in fact, it is going to be far more than that with uh, God himself dwelling there. So let me now continue this reading for us from verse 16 of chapter 6. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child, to the day of her death. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to us as we look at an ancient word and an ancient text. And as the ark is brought into Jerusalem, and as we, your people, are brought together in worship, we pray that you would confront us, even as you confronted David and Michal, with the reality of your presence with the reality of your abundant blessing and with the reality as well of your holiness as we come before you. 
And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are grand moments. There are marquee events and marquee moments that take place in God's grand story. Uh, We saw two of these in the last chapter. They don't get a lot of print, but there are two significant events that took place, and I've already alluded to both of them. One, that David is anointed as the king over both Judah and Israel. That's a marquee moment in the history of the people of God. And the second uh, that we noted is that David is victorious in leading the forces and in taking Jerusalem and in entering into that city. And another is right before us in our text today. There'll be another in the chapters to follow as well. But the headline for us is in verse 16. The ark of the Lord came into the city of David. That's the headline. That's, that's the lead, if you will. It in, in the sweep of God's story, this is God drawing nearer to humanity. Humanity has been banished from the very beginning from the presence of God because of our sinfulness. And now the ark being brought into this city, the city of David, the city of God, is another step along the path that leads us directly. It takes us directly to God the Son being made incarnate and being made to be near us. Okay, nearer and nearer, God draws to us throughout the history of the Old Covenant that then culminates in the coming of Emmanuel, God with us in the person of Jesus. And then, of course, this allows us to see that the eventual dwelling place that we will have will be in his holy presence as the people of God, in his holy city for all eternity, a city that itself will have no temple in it because the Lord himself will become the temple of that city. So the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. That's our marquee moment. But here's the reality, and you saw it as, or you heard it at least, as it was read for us, and even as I've already uh, kind of prayed for us as well in this, you saw that the biblical story, even these great significant moments that take place in history, these events are never divorced from or devoid of the people who were involved at that particular time and who are involved now even as we read it. All of these times, they are deeply personal. The entering into Jerusalem of the Ark of the Covenant of God is not just an impersonal event that takes place. It's not just a historical thing that happened. It is, in fact, deeply personal. The nearer God gets, the nearer you get to God, the more personal it becomes. It becomes closer to the heart. It becomes more intimate as God draws near and as we go into the presence of God. Think of it this way. Perhaps uh, if you recall the song with which we closed our worship last week, we sang uh, essentially Psalm 24 as we closed last week. Psalm 24 was uh, the, the, I'm sorry, 
was the hymn, Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates, as the king of glory comes in. And, and we read and sang this, the king of kings is drawing near, the savior of the world is here. That's the marquee moment, right? The king of kings, and that, that hymn, that psalm, <coughs> is reflecting on this event that takes place right here. And, and so it's the marquee moment, the king of kings drawing near, the savior of the world is here. And then as we went through that hymn, we concluded it, or one of the last stanzas of it says, Redeemer, come, I open wide my heart to you, Lord, here abide. And that's kind of what we're talking about here, is you've, you've got grand biblical events that take place, and, and yet there is always the opportunity to respond to those things personally. And that's what I hope that we'll do today as we are confronted with, uh, with this word that is before us. Today, what I want to emphasize and what I've titled the sermon is the theme of drawing near as we work through our text. And as we begin uh, then this morning, <coughs> I want to consider the impulse to draw near, the impulse that we have to close the gap. There's something deeply compelling about this idea of the distance between man and God being reduced, of being closer to God. Now, the ark of God, and we have to do a little bit of reminder here of what we're talking about. <coughs> the ark of God has been called, uh, rightly, I think, a sacrament of the presence of God. Now, back in 1 Samuel, and, and you'd have to recall back a little bit to uh, remember this part of the story, but back in 1 Samuel, the ark was kind of brought out with the idea that it would assist the Israelites in battle. That if you had the ark there in front of you, then you would always be victorious in warfare. But in this case, Israel is being judged by God. They were defeated and the ark was captured. It was captured by the Philistines. But as it turns out, as the Philistines kept the ark, it did them no good. It was, it was no grand thing for them to have the ark. And they asked this question amongst themselves. We're not going to turn back to it and look at it. But what are we going to do with the ark of God? That's what they want to know. What, what do we do with this thing? And of course, the solution that they come up with is get rid of it. <laughs> what we need to do is get this thing far away from us, get it back to the people to whom it belongs. And so uh, they return it to the people of Israel. And it was then, as it comes back, housed in the household of one Abinadab. And we read about him, we read about his sons in the text that we have here. It was about eight miles from Jerusalem, and it had been there since that time. And David, as he is now entering into this kingship, establishing himself and his household, in this city, he has the impulse to bring the ark of the Lord into the city of God, to bring it nearer, to, to bring this sacrament of the presence of God nearer. So in one sense, you can say David has the impulse to bring it nearer, but that doesn't quite capture it here. He has the impulse to bring him nearer, 
to, to close the gap. And, and, and the problem with saying him is we might misunderstand here. David understood this is a sacramental presence of God that is represented here. But nevertheless, that's the idea. This is the, this is the impulse of a man after God's own heart, right? That's what, that's what David is. David is a man after God's own heart. And the impulse of people after God's own heart is the desire to be with God the desire to draw closer to God, to be more intimate with God himself. Now, again, just a, a couple then of reminders about the ark. As the sacramental presence of God, the ark represented, uh, and I just want to do this in summary form. I don't want to do this in, uh, in great detail. But it, it re- represented three aspects of who God was. In the first place, it represented the fact that God was the sovereign. He was the king. He was the one who reigned over all things. It represented his might and his power. We even see that here in this passage. You you could look at plenty of passages prior to this and understand this as well. But in verse 2, where the full title of the ark is given, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So to, to bring the ark into the city is, in a sense, to bring the chair, to bring the throne on which God, the king, resides. So it represented God's sovereign power. Uh, and, and here what you've got, then, is the, the newly anointed king looking to bring the king into the city, looking the, the Lord, David, looking to bring his Lord into the rightful position as Lord over this city. The second thing that the, uh, that the ark represents, and here it would be helpful to take out your bulletin and look at the verses on the front of your bulletin, is it represents the ark, the, the law of God, the word of God, the communication of God as it goes forth. If you look at that first passage uh, there on your bulletin, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, the Ten Commandments. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. It's the place from which God speaks. So the king sits on his throne, and the king issues forth his decree, his word to his people, from that place seated on the throne. And then the last thing here, and again, the point isn't to be in detail here, it's just by way of reminder for us. The ark not only represents those two things, but it also represents for us the abundant mercy of the Lord. It represents for us atonement, the fact that the Lord is gracious and compassionate towards his people. And that's seen in the very title of what I just read for us, the mercy seat, Uh, as as it is referred to. It's not referred to as the judgment seat there. It's the mercy seat where God inhabits with his people. But nevertheless, let's look at uh, Leviticus chapter 16, verses 15 through 16, and see this even more clearly. 
Then he, that is Aaron, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins." So this mercy of God is also represented there as well. And if you want to put these, you would appropriately put these uh, in terms that we are very familiar with, and it's completely understandable and makes sense to see that you can see here God as king over his people, God as prophet declaring the word to his people, and God as priest making atonement for his people. So here's the impulse. That has to come near that's all good. That is all a blessing. And that has to come near to close the gap. That is the Lord who calls us to come. If you were with us last week, we saw all of those verses multiplied uh, from, from the prophets onward uh, to Jesus saying, come to me, come to me. So that Lord is calling us to come. But what we find and what we find in our text so clearly is that we are faced immediately with this idea of the danger of drawing near. There, there's an impulse to draw near, but then we see the danger of it right there. I had uh, a number of alternative titles for uh, the sermon today. I, I have one, uh, proximity warning, uh, danger approaching, too close for comfort, don't touch, handle with care. Those were all ideas that I have for uh, the title of it. But, but here's the idea when we read this text. The effort seems to start off so well. You have an honorable and a mighty collection of 30,000 select men. That seems to fit this idea of a marquee moment. David recognizes this is going to be a significant event in the history of God working with his people to bring the ark in, and he marks it accordingly. There's appropriate, suitable, it seems, enthusiasm that was going on there. But there's actually a problem even before we get to the incident with Uzzah uh, being killed in the anger there. The problem is actually found in verse 3, where we read this, "...and they carried the ark of God on a new cart." and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Now, the idea here of the ark coming on a cart is actually a problem. That is actually not what God decreed in terms of the transportation of the ark itself. What God had decreed was that there was a particular clan of the Levitical tribe who would have authority and responsibility to care for the ark in its transport. And in so doing, they had a very particular way in which they were to cover the ark and then to transport the ark on poles, not on a new cart. And the idea here is that the ark is too holy. It is too holy to be seen by everybody. It is too holy to be touched and therefore this particular tribe of the Levites is appointed to this task. So where do you get the idea that you can move the Ark of the Covenant of God on a new cart? Now the answer to that is the Philistines. 
That's the Philistines' idea. That's, that's not God's idea. That's how the Philistines sent the ark back to Israel. They didn't know what they were doing. So their idea was, let's build a new cart, not an old cart, but let's build a new cart and we'll put the ark on the new cart and we'll send it back to the Israelites. And so what takes place here is a failure to understand what God's requirements are, God's rules for this holiness. And this holiness was to be preserved by the people as they respected what God had established as the way to move the ark. And it was not only for the sake of just having rules about how to move it, but it was for the sake of the people themselves. It was protection for the people of God. It was protection because they were not ready for that kind of exposure to the holiness of God. The danger of this holiness for sinners all is then made clear in the seemingly innocuous or, dare we say, almost, it almost seems like a noble attempt to steady the cart, right? So it goes off kilter a little bit, and it seems like, well, this is the right thing to do, right? You've got you to reach out. You've got to stabilize things to keep the ark from being sullied uh, by hitting the ground. Now, as far as I know, this is still a custom and a practice today, but I know when I was growing up uh, and we would put up an American flag, we were always very careful. And, and my family was just very careful in what you did with the flag as you were putting it up. Uh, and the way you folded it was according to the way it should be folded and then tucked in. And, and I, I mean, I remember my aunt regularly telling me, don't let that thing touch the ground. Don't let it hit the ground. And I think even uh, when our kids were little and we, that same flagpole uh, down on the Chesapeake, we would still, I'd still do the same thing and work it out uh, with, with them. This idea that touching the ground would somehow sully, would somehow dirty the flag or demean the flag in some way. That, that maybe is a little bit of an idea for us that, that Uzzah seems to have here, keep the ark from hitting the ground. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is the ground never rebelled against God. We rebelled against God. The, the ground, it, it's odd to say it, you think, the ground isn't dirty. We're the ones who are actually dirty. We're the ones who are actually polluted. We're the problem. Okay, so that said, when you read the story, it is still somewhat shocking. And it was certainly shocking to David to see Uzzah dead. He's alive one minute, everybody's celebrating, everybody's happy, it's a great affair, everybody's joyous, a little bit of a bobble in the ark, okay, steady it, and the man's dead. To see the anger of the Lord poured out in that way is shocking to David. Now, note, we don't always see the anger of the Lord poured out in exactly these ways, in this dramatic of a way. But sometimes, biblically speaking, in these, again, marquee moments, marquee events, sometimes something like this is brought forward just to remind us, just to say, everybody pay attention. Look at what's happening here. Look at how serious the moment is and don't underestimate what is taking place. Well, in David's, your two words are used here, in David's anger and in David's 
fear of what takes place. This stops the whole procession. The parade comes to a halt. David, I I suppose, is somewhat convicted by his own guilt here, his own unworthiness, and he asks this question, how can the ark come to me? What am I going to do with the ark in Jerusalem so proximate to me when in fact it is this dangerous that this man has died just for reaching out to study it? Drawing near is dangerous. And it seems to be that this is one of the places where we can see in Scripture that our human tendency is to think that we can approach God or at least bring God nearer to us on our own terms. Now, there seems to be a a pridefulness in that, a a hubris in that idea. And if not a pridefulness or, or a hubris, then perhaps at least we can see it as some kind of a, 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 a too familiar with God, of being too casual in our approach to God. So this Uzzah, who died here, and the text says this for us, is the son of Aminadab, who had housed the ark for all of those years, which is to say he was accustomed to being around the ark. All these other people weren't, but he was. And perhaps his familiarity with things holy caused him or led him to reach out in ways that were inappropriate, that he himself had gotten lost. He he had lost track of the holiness of God in this. But then we kind of think it's okay for us to approach God on our terms. Maybe we think that there are things that we can do that allow us to approach God or that would make God happy with us if we came into his presence. Maybe it's as simple as, you know, giving donations to particular organizations, doing good things for other people, or just being sincere. Just being sincere should be enough. God should just be happy with us because we're sincere and we sincerely want to come to him. David is startled to find in God a holiness that is dangerous. That's what he's startled by. A holiness that is dangerous. David needs to learn that we need to draw near to God through the means and the ways God has established and provided. Not by means that are devised by us or ideas that might seem right to us about approaching God. But what has God said? How do we approach him? So we have these two things then first. We've got the the impulse to draw near. You've got the danger of drawing near. And then the next thing that we're shown is the blessing of drawing near. You've got the impulse of it, the danger of it, and then the blessing of it. So the detour took the ark to the house of Obed-Edom. Now, I can't help but wonder what Obed-Edom thought of this. Forgive me for a bit of a digression here. But you know, you've got 30,000 men who are taking the ark into Jerusalem. Somebody dies, and somebody says, let's take it up to this guy's house. Obed-Edom lives up the hill. We'll take it up there to him. 30,000 men with the ark show up at your place and say, listen, this is too dangerous for us to keep in Jerusalem. We're keeping it at your house. How do you respond to that? What, what do you say at that point? Now, Obed-Edom, it appears, was 
a Gittite, but also a Levite. Um, and so he apparently had some idea, and one can infer from what takes place here, that he had some idea of how to rightly appreciate and handle the Ark of God. Nevertheless, that's quite a moment. I don't want to be anywhere close to the Ark, so we're going to keep it at your house. What is completely here that, clear, though, in the text and made clear to us in both as it's reported to David as, and as David reflects on it, is that God blesses this man's household on account of the ark. Now, we don't have here a description of what those blessings were. If we cross-referenced a couple of places in Scripture, uh, we could see that it, it certainly could be with children. Obed-Edom has many children, uh, many sons who serve in the house of the Lord, but perhaps with harvest, perhaps with uh, joy abundant in the household, grandchildren uh, and joy. The blessing that came upon his household was notable. Now, let me bring something in here for a moment. I want to bring in Psalm 73. One of my favorite phrases in Scripture uh, is found in Psalm 73, and you don't need to turn to it. I think you'll recognize it. But it says in Psalm 73, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. Or in the ESV, it says this, but for me, it is good to be near God. Obed-Edom's house is the demonstration of this. It's good to be near God, and David hears of it. David hears of all of this blessing coming to this household that's housing the ark. So think of it this way. With respect to the nearness of God, David has two realities that are set in front of him. Reality number one is that Uzzah is dead. Uzzah is dead. The ark means danger, and it's keeping the ark and David away from the ark. That's reality number one. Reality number two is that Obed-Edom is blessed. Obed-Edom has experienced the grace and the favor and the generosity of God. And that's drawing David closer. So, so here he is. He's faced with two, two men, one dead man, one blessed man. And what do I do with drawing near to God? I'm, uh, I'm thankful for uh, Rick Phillips and his commentary. He, he put in a reminder of a story that I don't want to go into the details of it. This is just a point of reference uh, for those of you who are familiar with the story and for uh, Narnia fans. But this is Jill's moment in the silver chair, right, where, where she awakens and she's thirsty and she wants to get a drink and there's a lion between her and the stream. And she's frozen. And the lion says, come and get a drink. The water's right here. And, and she, are you going to eat me? Is it, is it okay? Can I, can I come by you? And he, he says, I make no promises. I make no promises. I'll go around. I'll find some other stream. And, of course, he says, there is no other stream. There's no other stream. What are you going to do? There's danger. And there's beautiful, satisfying water that is there. What do you do? <clears throat> David's response is like Paul's. The love of God compels us. And Jack, you prayed this in your prayer. It's the, it's the response of the disciples when they hear the hard words of Jesus. 
And Jesus turns to him and says, are you going to go as well? Other people have left me. Are, are you going to follow after them? Are you going to go as well? And they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who else are we going to turn to? You have the words of eternal life. The ark isn't safe, but it's good. It's good. <coughs> but even so, David then reflects on the way to draw near. Okay? How do I draw near? And his reflection isn't simply kind of asking the question, oh, that went wrong. <coughs> Sorry. We're just ignoring this voice and those coughs and this sipping. Just ignore it. But David is trying to figure out what has God commanded with respect to drawing near? What has God commanded about this? And so David's answer isn't, let me just try something else here. David's answer is to the law and to the testimonies. And let's try and understand how to approach God. Now, in verse 12 of this particular text, we don't have a description of that. It's kind of he hears about the blessing and he goes. But there is an expanded version of this story that is found actually in 1 Chronicles. I don't want you to turn there right now. If you'd like to read it later, uh, you can. But as this story is told in 1 Chronicles from uh, chapter, it's about 15 through 16, or, or actually 13 through 16, uh, we get more detail about what took place. In fact, we get a, a record of many of the psalms that were sung on this day, and, uh, and we've, I've already tried to incorporate a number of them into the service. But in, in that section of Scripture, we read this. <coughs> this is David addressing the Levites, who were supposed to be the ones to carry the ark. He says, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. That's what takes place. Between, between hearing about the blessing and going to get the ark, that reflection has taken place. What has God commanded about this? What direction has God given? The way to draw near, even for a man after God's own heart, must be set forth by God and followed by that man so that the nearness of God is a blessing and not a curse to that man and his household and his city and his kingdom. And that's all seen in the second commandment. Right? All of those things that we saw in the second commandment apply right here. God has determined the way of approach. How do you draw near to me? This is how you draw near to me as my people. And we're not going to go into that in detail right now. But God has set forth in worship how the people of God are to come into his presence. And it's, of course, applies to what we do specifically, and then also the heart with which we do that thing. Or, or think of it, 
Think of it, and, and I, I, again, I'm, I'm going to reference something here, but I'm not going to go into it in depth. But, but think of another place in Scripture where you see this idea that the nearness of God can be both a blessing and a curse, depending on how you're doing it. Think of the Lord's Supper in Corinth. Okay, it, it, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the presence of God, of the covenant of grace, is becoming for the people in Corinth a problem. And Paul is giving, to them, giving them warnings and saying to them, this is why some of you are sick and have died. And so he says to them, I delivered to you what I also received. And then he gives to them the word. He gives the same idea. You have to handle the things of God with care, with care, according to the way that God has established those things. And the invitation then, of course, in Corinth is examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see if you are handling the things of God in that way. But what is, of course, most clearly set forth for us in Scripture is that the way to draw near to God for people now is through his son, Jesus, who is the final high priest, as the high, final high priest, grants us unparalleled access into this grace in which we stand. There's no more sacrifices, no more offerings that are needed, no more Levites that are needed, certainly no more carts that are needed to come into the presence of God. But we must come into the presence of God through the person of Jesus and through understanding who the person of Jesus is. And that brings us today to our last point, and that is the celebration of the nearness of God. This was, as I've said, a unique marquee event, a moment in Israel's history. And then you get this up close and personal in it, in the lives of Michal and David and their respective reactions to it. Now we have to consider Michal. Michal, uh, you know, you want to acknowledge this. Michal's been poorly treated. She's been poorly treated throughout the entirety of her life as we've followed it along in uh, these scriptures. But in this episode, in the midst of that poor treatment, her heart is uncovered. Her allegiances are actually made clear several times, I think three times in the section here she's referred to as the daughter of Saul. And as such, she represents an old way of thinking and living. And the old way of thinking and living is more about appearances. It's more about reputation. It's more about what do you look like before other people. Michal did not rejoice with those who rejoice. She did not exhibit a heart for the Lord. Instead, she despised David in her heart. The drawing near of God became for her an event that revealed the bitterness of her heart, the resentment of her heart. It was a time to bring up old wounds. It became a time for her to cast one last spear with her words in the name of her father at David. David saw it differently. He danced. He sang. He sacrificed. He gave offerings. He rejoiced. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed gifts to the people who were there. 
And the difference could not be clearer for us in the section that, in particular, I read for us earlier. Michal could only see her life and his as being before people. She says, you, you shamed yourself, you uncovered yourself, not only just in front of your servants, but in front of the servants of your servants. You uncovered yourself. You lived your life that way before them. David, conversely, verse 21, says this. It was before the Lord. She sees it as before men. David says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. Your vision's all messed up here. Your evaluative process of what took place here is all messed up. It was before the Lord that I did these things. And it concludes then in verse 21. And I will celebrate before the Lord. Her life lived before the world. It was the eyes of the world that mattered to Michal, and what mattered to David were the eyes of the Lord. It was before the Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the other things, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So there's questions that come to us here. Examine yourself type questions. Is your heart before the Lord when you come into worship? Is there any way in which in our corporate worship or your family worship or your personal worship that the things of God, that the nearness of God has come, become for you something too casual, too familiar, something you think, ah, I can just come in and do this any old way I'd like to? Do you need to reflect on your approach to God? Is the nearness of God your good? The ark itself, I remind you, has passed in terms of our worship with God. Jeremiah wrote this several hundred years later. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed, it shall not be made again. Presumably the ark was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem 300 years after the dates of what we're reading about here. Jeremiah says, it won't be built again. It won't be remembered. And it won't be missed. The ark has passed because it was surpassed in the coming of the Messiah to whom it pointed. And that Messiah bids us to come and celebrate with him before the mercy seat in the very presence of his Father. It is for us in him the throne of grace, the throne for mercy, the place to come for help, and the place where we as the people of God gather together in our worship of him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us as your people to approach you well, to reflect well upon you. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way for us. And that way is through you and in you and through faith in you. Help us to walk in a way that is honoring to you in the things that we do and in our heart of hearts 
May that be true for us, Lord. May we seek after you, delighting to be in your presence all the days of our lives. Lord, help us to live our lives before you and to celebrate before you, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stay